I have something absolutely amazing for you today. Today, my guest is Jason Miller. In 2012, Jason was picked up by a tornado. He was pulled into a funnel cloud, and then he was thrown a quarter of a mile away. Not only did he survive, but there's so many pieces to his testimony, deliverance, redemption, beautiful things that are going to inspire you today. So he wrote me and he said, it's been 10 years and God is showing him now why he saved his life. So I'm thrilled to have Jason with me tonight. Welcome. Julie, thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast and I really appreciate it. Well, I'm thrilled for you to be here today. Uh, Just to get started, I know you have an interesting background. If you could just kind of touch on a little bit about what, where you came from before and where you were when this happened to you. Yeah. So I grew up in an Amish community, so we had a big family like most Amish people do. And a lot of my story, you know, starts in my, obviously in my teenage years, I was, I was trying to fit in and and tried to join the the church. What we do is you become baptized into the church, right? So then you're a, you know a member of the church, right? I like to say this about the Amish is that I, it's a great way to grow up, and I don't like to disparage them, but it we were more taught on being committed to the church than we were in being committed to Jesus Christ, right? So. At 14, I began to question a lot of things, right? I was always like the guy that was, you know, just didn't like to believe everything I was told, right? I had to have my own answers. And so I went on my own journey. And so I became a little bit of a black sheep, maybe. Suddenly I'm 21. I'm a member of the church. I don't want to be Amish. I knew the Holy Spirit was in me, but I didn't feel like I was living it. I was more living to the church and their standards. So at 21 years old, I left the Amish. And, and I was excommunicated about 10 months later because growing up like that, if you leave what they want, they don't want you to pull the other people away, right? So yeah, they're afraid that if they don't ostracize you, that you will then influence the other people. So they had to excommunicate me, which means that I wasn't allowed to hang out with their with my friends and wasn't allowed to really eat at my family's table, although I could see my family. I had a lot of friends, right? And so my life really started over at that point, 21 years old, in a big family. So I grew up in a family of 13. We have six boys and seven girls. And in a lot of ways, I I love to say our whole family is a miracle family. You know, my mom is just the most amazing woman. She is, I mean, I don't know how she did it or how she still does it, but my dad passed away in 2020 from not from COVID, but he passed away in a hospital. I think they had halfway died of a, you know, isolation, right? So that's a, but outside of that, my whole family is alive. We're we're healthy. My mom is healthy. And I had a good relationship with my family. So then when I left, that was the hardest thing for me was the ostracization, right? From the family. But I was on a mission to find truth. Okay. So at 21, I left. Um, I didn't go party. I didn't, I didn't leave for the wrong reasons. I really left to find truth. I had, um, you know, there's something that was drawing me to find out what was really real. What, why was I put here on this earth? You know, what was God calling me to? What was the truth about the Bible and why we had, we're supposed to live a good life. So that was my journey, right? Was to, 
lead the Amish, to seek truth. And, um, and then when I was excommunicated, they thought that would ostracize me, which would then draw me back in. That's the idea of it. But, you know, if it's not done in love, and I don't know, not to say what they, why they, if they didn't love or not, I know it was really hard on my family and it didn't, it drove me out. And so I got excommunicated about eight months later, I was 21. And then from there, I really got drove out on a, you know, on kind of a wild party, party phase of my life. And so that's kind of the next chapter of my life right there after I got excommunicated and I, and I decided that I would go to different churches. I, I visited a lot of churches. I mean, I looked behind under every rock almost, I think, for religion. And, and what I found was that a lot of it was the same. It was religion, okay? And religion is man seeking for God, right? And what I think, you know, how I see the spiritual realm now is it's God seeking for me and I'm responding to that call. So um, instead of I'm always trying to do the best I can and I'm always looking for, you know, Am I doing this right? I'm so afraid of being deceived. And, you know, they taught that was a big thing. And in, in religious communities, they tell you, don't listen to this person. Don't go to this church. Don't do this because you might be deceived. Never trusting the Holy Spirit in their life to speak to them, you know, about where, where God's going. And so I was really disappointed in what I found out there in the religious, you know, in the churches. And I know there's good ones and 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 every one of those has its exceptions, but I was very disappointed, and that's kind of what ultimately pushed me out, right? So the next phase for me, I think, was was slow. And here's you know part of my testimony is that most of us who had a party phase, or a lot of us, we we get pulled into these things. They're not. They don't just happen overnight, right? It starts small and we get pulled in and it's it's harmless, right? It's no big deal. Um, and I can say even in my life today, there are things and habits that I have picked up or habits that I have broke that I can look back and recognize that habit came from thinking, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just don't be so religious, right? We all make mistakes, but that mindset got me in a lot of trouble and so today I can recognize like a lot of little things right I'm like oh man this is probably not going to go in a good place so back then I thought drinking a beer was no big deal right maybe it wasn't to some people you know some people can maybe drink a few beers okay it's not my up to judge but for me it um, anything that altered my mind, uh, alcohol, and then later, as I'll tell my story, is you know, I guess I got into uh, medical, uh, big pharma pills and drugs. It changed me, and I became a different person. And alcohol, even in the early years, did a lot of that for me. So, you know, the alcohol, partying, right, meeting people, trying to fit in. Um, part of my story, I think maybe that's important to tell is that I was really always trying to fit in, right? It was difficult for me to fit in. If you, if you imagine growing up in a family, 13 kids, um, I think there was only like nine of us at home at the, was the most that ever was ever, ever at home. But, uh, we didn't get along. I didn't get along with my dad, right? My dad was, my dad's dad was adopted. And so he grew up in a family of 13 and, 
they were, you know, he had a hard life. And later on, my dad made incredible strides in communicating with us, but I had a really poor relationship with my dad. And I didn't really ever feel like I fit in. I was, it was a lot of bickering, a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting, but in a very close knit community, right? We went to church. We all ate together at church. We had, we went to a one room schoolhouse, you know, I mean, I graduated in a one-room schoolhouse. I only went to the eighth grade, and we would have, you know, just like they did in the nineteen, you know, 1800s, probably. We we ate lunch together, and then we played ball. And so when I get, when I leave that, and I go out in the, you know, in the big bad world, it was it was difficult for me to assim, you know, assimilate to the culture. And probably the hardest thing for me, right, was was um, the the kind of the crudeness of the culture around me. People were very crude. They would make mom jokes. They would they would say things about girls that would I couldn't believe they would say things like that. And so then I would oppose it. Then I would get made fun of. And I was like, you know, they called me all kinds of names from, you know, Jebediah Yoder to dumb Amish or whatever, you know. And and I'm trying to fit in. I'm sensitive to that. And so. When I found alcohol and I was in this space, um, it got kind of got out of control, right? Pretty quick. I, but I had the morals, okay? I had the work value, and so I worked really hard. I had the morals, and so I held it together for ten years, you know, and worked hard and and achieved, you know, what I thought I wanted to achieve. You know, in my mind, you worked hard, you bought a house, you had friends, you, you know, you did, you did all those things. And I had always in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, when I, when at some point I will come back to live for, for the Lord, right. And, and I'll do the right thing. But for right now, I, during this time, I would go to church and in in between, right. But, you know, I never connected with the Holy spirit. I never connected to that thing, that purpose. And, you know, it's in the party phase. And I know a lot of people have gone through that phase, but for me, got just worse and worse and I didn't understand addiction I didn't even know what it was right I didn't I've never seen addiction so in I want to say maybe in like 2008 something like that I had a house I had the boat I had the motorcycles I had you know was dating the girl I wanted and I kind of thought you know I had this thing all together and and I was introduced right during this time, you know, at the, in my most comfortable state, you know, isn't that how the enemy always works when you feel like, you know, you, everything's going okay. And he, he's like, all right, this boy needs a test, right? Or this is a good time to, you know, to take him out. And so I was in my next door neighbor was, you know, went to doing drugs and I think it was just pills at the time, but there's a story of something that was happening in my relationship that was very traumatic. And and the day that it happened, my neighbor walked over on the back porch. Looking back, it was totally the enemy. I mean, he set that boy up to come to me on that day at that point with that drug. And he gave me that. And it and it took the pain away that I was feeling right. It really did. And it set me on a mission that every time I felt pain, every time I went through something hard, I just turned to that, right? When life got hard, I was turning to something to numb myself out. And I did that on a, I began to do that on a large scale, right? So over the next couple of years, I 
I lost my girlfriend. I lost my job. Um, I was still a functioning, you right. I wasn't like wild or, you know, homeless or anything like that, but it had, it had gotten, you know, slowly gotten worse. In 2011, I switched jobs and it was getting really bad. Okay. This was a point where I was getting really bad. I had an experience in 2011 that was, I would say it shifted the spiritual aspect of my life. I had an experience where I knew I shouldn't go meet this guy. I knew I shouldn't do this drug. Um, and I wouldn't say I heard God during this time, but I, I, I was saved at 16 years old. I accepted Jesus into my heart. Um, and, you know, I understood that God still spoke to his people. And so I knew what the check was. Okay. I knew the check was the Holy Spirit checking me. This guy was a convicted criminal. He was the worst guy in town. He had the worst drugs and I didn't even do these drugs. And so I, I did it anyway. And I had a, a spiritual encounter that invite that invited a demonic um, influence. And I believe that I opened a door in 2011 to, to the demonic into my life. And I did not know how to shut it. I didn't have the people around me right. By this time, I was isolated enough. I did have one man who's now back in my life. Uh, my friend Jonathan, he... He's kind of always been there in the background, and God's always had those people, uh, just enough to keep me alive, right? <laughs> He's had these men and these people in my life that could speak into my life. So I called this guy about this, and it was an, it's just maybe a story for a different day, but it was a, a terrifying demonic experience. And over about a week that this lasted, I believe I, I, I had opened a door to this entity and he got legal access into my life and I went on binges and I, my mind and my thought process became very unhinged after that. I would do irrational things. I would, uh, I was not an honest person. Suddenly I, I was, I had all these morals and these values and towards the end of 2011, I, I remember doing things and I couldn't believe I was doing these things. Like I would never treat someone like that or I would never... Um, um, I mean, everything from, you know, stealing to cheating to everything. And I just so many things shifted for me at that point. Um, and so I was on a pretty good downward spiral, right? My family at this point, I wasn't really talking to my family. They, they loved me. I knew they loved me, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really take anything from them. I had kind of ostracized myself from my family, from my friends because I didn't want to hear what they had to say. I knew enough about uh, religion and relationship at that point. I had an older sister also who got married to a, to a guy in Northwestern Montana and they were, they were, uh, they went to a revival and I want to say like 98 and they were Holy Spirit filled. So she would speak to me about these things. And so I knew enough that I didn't like what they had I didn't like what most of my friends and family had that were calling me back to the church. And I didn't know how much the world and the enemy was going to devastate me. And so I got caught on this like wave out to sea, right? And going into 2012, that's really where I was. I mean, my heart was to do the right thing, but I had opened a door and a, you know, legal access, I think, into my life and had just 
I didn't have the people around me to keep me stable. And then, uh, so then I would go to March 2nd of 2012 is, you know, where my life really changed. It's kind of the basis maybe of, of this, uh, of my true testimony is when the tornado happens. That's kind of the next part of the story. Yeah. And, you know, you say, you know, you had changed as a person, but obviously you had a huge heart for your neighbors and that's a big part of what I want you to share too. So, yeah. Can you talk about what happened, what that happened that day? So, yeah. So March 2nd of 2012, you know, started just like any other day. I was watching the weather. We knew there was a big storm coming by this time. I was living with my, with another girl we were living in her father's, um, her dad had bought a property, next, they, they owned a sawmill, they had bought a property, there was a double wide, there was a couple trailers there, we had helped fix up the double wide, I moved into the double wide, a friend of mine and his girlfriend and the three kids, they moved into the trailer, they were right next, we all lived on this little piece of property, but just remember, I was not in a good space, okay, March 1st of 2012, 10.30 at night, I'm walking down the road on the phone with my mom, um, desperate. I'm I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm begging mom. Somehow I have to get out of this situation. I was not in a good relationship. I was using drugs. I was drinking. I was like, I'd never been in this pl place like this. And I just want to say this because this is kind of important of, about what happened and how God used it, right? So I, I actually, I was on a call, I believe with my sisters and my mom, we were like in this, this, this three-way call and I was in a desperate state. The next day I stayed home from work. It was a Friday. My girlfriend was a school teacher. She went to school and um, in the afternoon there was a tornado coming and it's interesting that this tornado was going to come through Pekin, Indiana. We saw it on the radar. We saw the tornado track. We knew it was coming. So I was kind of prepared watching the weather. And then I remember sitting in front of the TV, watching the weather, and the weatherman came on and he said, the, the storm has turned and it's going to go south, a little further south than we thought, and it's going to hit Louisville, Kentucky, but it's going to miss, you know, there was Salem, Indiana, where I grew up, Pekin, Indiana, it's where the, I was living at the time. This tornado was known as the Pekin-Henryville tornado because it took out a high school in Henryville, Indiana. Um but as the as I saw that the tornado was going to turn, I got up, turned the basically walked away from the TV. And about 15 minutes later, I thought I'm going to go outside and see where the storm is at. And so as I looked, opened the door and looked, the storm was literally coming at me right across the road. And I was shocked. Right, I thought the thing was going to miss us. Come to find out, that storm had begun to turn south. And then literally about the time I walked away from the TV, it's like the it's like the devil turned that thing and it came straight from my house. It is wild. The track of that tornado came right to my house and it had moved and went, you know, started to come at a northwestern pattern and hit my house. And uh, but I saw it coming over the hill. It looked like a freight train going sideways is how I describe it, because you can't really see the funnel cloud when you're that close. Right. You just see. You see the debris in the air and you hear the roar, you hear the sound. And uh, as soon as I saw it, I, I heard a scream and I looked next door and Mariah was standing outside the house. She was holding a little girl and they lived in a trailer, right? And I started thinking they're in a trailer, there's a tornado coming and she's panicking. And 
my first instinct was to go help, you know, go help them and get them out of the trailer. Sometimes I wish I would have put them in the truck. Did we have time to drive out of there? But, uh, you know, you react in that moment. And actually, I calmed down. I remember, I remember becoming almost calm inside. Like, I saw the panic. I saw the drama. They were screaming. So I ran over there. I grabbed the little girl. Her name was Angel. Uh, Joe ran back in the house and grabbed the little boy. His name was Kendall. And Mariah had the baby. And I said, we got to run to the house, guys. That thing is there. And she is panicking. And it's, you know, it is coming right at us. And we run back into my double wide. It has an addition built on. It's a little more stable. So we run back into the house. And, you know, this thing is coming across the road. It's you can there's a sawmill and you can see the boards are in the air. So it's just the air is just full of of uh, lumber. You kind of realize, you know, the, the realization was hitting me like. I'm probably not going to survive this. It was really it, we were we were in that dead in the path of this tornado. Um, but I think the family being so terrified kind of kind of helped me stay calm in some weird way um i know some people i've hear other people say stories like that when things go nuts and some people have the ability to kind of calm down but so i i i was focused on getting them into the house getting them in the middle of a room um you know you heard all the tornadoes things right they're on the tornado they say don't stay in a trailer uh get to the room in the middle of your house uh, lay down on the floor get to the lowest place and I had been hearing that, and that's just a response I automatically did. So we got them in the middle of the hallway. I threw some pillows on top of them, and I went over to the door of the house. I opened up the door just to see where it was at. I'd always wanted to see a tornado. I just, you know, <laughs> didn't want to see it that close. But I, uh, it was right when I opened the door, the tornado was tearing the garage in half. Like, my half of my garage was gone. It was just right there. It was just the power of that storm. It just... To this day, it's amazing, man, how strong, like, I'm telling you, these things are, you just unlike anything. An F4 tornado has a 180-mile rotation, and it's on top of my house, and I shoulder the door shut, and I start praying, and I run back on top of the family, and I jump on top of them. They're praying, I'm praying, and they're screaming, and uh, just real panic, man, but it didn't last long because we, as the tornado hit the house, it shook the house. You could feel, so imagine a double wide sitting on a block foundation. The, the a double wide is strapped down to the ground with these big augers in the ground. This double wide was not strapped down. Okay. I'd been underneath of that and I'd seen somebody did not fasten the straps to the, to the, um, to the ground pegs. So when the tornado hit the house, it, it literally moved it. And you could feel the, you could feel the house move on the foundation, and it lifted right up off the foundation. And so, uh, you know, we're sitting there. You feel it hit. It gets shaken. You hear an loud explosion, boom, and the house gets picked up. And I can just feel the floor. Just, you know, the house is going away. And I think in that moment, I just, I remember thinking that, you know, that I was going to die. That there was you know, nothing I could do at that point. I was praying. That's kind of the last memory I have. When I heard the explosion, I did think that glass was going to hit me. 
but I because I, I remember waiting kind of for the windows to hit me. But when the explosion happened, what happened, the tornado came over the house very squarely, right? Sucked the oxygen out of the air, blew the windows out, and we all blacked out. So I, I you know I believe that's what happened. I know that's what happened for me as I just blacked out, right? I don't remember anything. All of a sudden, my next memory, I come to it, I'm a couple hundred feet in the air. I'm laying on the inside of the this um it's like a wind wall right i didn't i don't know if i knew where i was at i knew that i was high above the ground and i was um i was only awake just long enough to remember to see where i was at right i just knew that i was high up and i was my feet were out behind me i'm spinning around literally on the wall of the tornado there's a two by four that was kind of over to my right that was broken. Um, there was some shrapnel that was moving with me, but I was not in the wall. I was not in the eye. I was in the wall. So what happens is it's like a blender, right? And it just chops and turns and throws stuff out the side. But it had pulled me into the wall. The house had, or into the funnel, the house had came apart and it pulled me up the funnel. And I'm couple hundred feet in the air on the inside wall of this funnel. I, I heard later, I did a, I did an episode called I Survived for uh, the biography channel. And uh, a guy on there told me that I'm the only guy that he knows that has ever been on the inside eye of a tornado and lived to tell. There's people that get picked up by him and thrown, but wow. Um, so I, you know, that, that was just long enough for me to open my eyes, see where I was at. I knew I couldn't get back down. And later, my sister actually came to the hospital later after, afterwards. And she had said that God spoke to her about that moment and said she had been on the phone with me the night before and knew I was in a really dark place. They saw 10 years of trauma in my life going down a really bad road leading up to this March 1st phone call with my mom and my sisters. And she, and then when this happened, God gave her this whole word about how he pulled me up out of this situation because I was so stubborn. I was, I was on such a terrible path that he had to pull me up out of this situation and let me open my eyes, see where I was at and say, Jason, look where I brought you. I pulled you out of that situation, let you open your eyes to see where you're at. And, and then, and then I blacked back out again. Right. And then from the next moment, the next part of this is kind of for fuzzy. I don't remember a lot of details, right? I was very, I had amnesia for a while. I didn't know who I was. I woke up in a field, I would say a quarter mile away. I walked, started walking. And I, I don't remember a whole lot of this story. Some lady came up to me, found me walking down the road. I, I was cut right through my armpit. Shrapnel had almost cut this left arm off. Um, I had broke my back. I don't know how I was walking and like three vertebrae on my back. I broke five ribs. This arm was broken in two places. This elbow was shattered. Um, I landed on this arm somehow out there. I make the joke I must have landed on a cow in a cow pasture because how do you go from 300 feet in the air, get thrown the opposite direction out in a field and land and not get killed, like, or just ripped apart? It's, yeah. it's a, truly amazing that, that I survived it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will always would tell me over the next six months when I went through some really dark times, people would tell me, 
things like you're so lucky to be alive like you know god's really got a plan for you man like he saved your life and uh you know i didn't like to hear that there was a lot of times when you don't want to hear that you know your journey and your testimony it grows and for people who are in the middle of that journey just know you're going to move through that you don't stay there we don't stay in those places we move through those spaces and and evolve if the if if god's got a call on your life you're going to pull through it and it's going to make something beautiful but in the process that was hard part but so kind of back to the story a little bit we i i came to um I came to, I was face down in the mud. I already tried to walk back to the house. Then my memory really finally comes back. And this cop car almost drives over me. I'm laying face down in the mud. It's 4.30 in the afternoon. It's almost pitch black. Um, people are starting to come in and look for the survivors. I think maybe it was 15 minutes after the tornado, probably by this time when I came to and walked back and got up. And first thing I started doing is I started, uh, you know, they were asking me all these questions and I couldn't remember anything. And the first thing I remembered was my neighbors. And I was sitting on a five gallon bucket and I just remember all of a sudden I said, where are the Babcocks? And I jumped up and I was like, just, it just, it just hit me. I didn't even think about, or I really didn't know if I was hurt or not. I, I was in shock. Right. So they grabbed me, they held me down, and they were like, who are you talking about? And I told them, I said, the Babcocks, they were in my house, right? These, where are these people at? And they were, they had to hold me down, and they were like, we're going to go find them. Just stay right here. We're going to go find them. A bunch of people, there was, by this time, a group of people had gathered around me. So they left, disappeared, and uh, I never heard anything else about what happened. I, I went into shock almost. They put me in an ambulance, drove me to the hospital. Um, called my girlfriend and told her she was actually working like a couple blocks from the hospital at the school and came up to see me. And I, I obviously I was in really, I, so I had cut this arm uh, almost off. I broke this arm in like seven places, my collarbone, my shoulder blade. I broke five ribs and my three vertebrae in my back, uh, like L1, L2 and L5 or something like that. And uh, so then I was transferred to uh, University of Louisville Hospital, where I was there for like six, 15 or 16 days, something like that. Um, and I kind of, you know, over the years, I've had a miraculous recovery from all that. But, but because of, uh, you know, everything, I guess, that happened there the the trauma of of when you go through a traumatic situation like that really you don't know how you're going to respond right i didn't know how i was going to respond out of it um about three days after the, the after the accident i'm laying in the hospital bed and i don't remember if i had i had asked about this family what happened to this family like where you know where was joe and mariah and the kids what happened and they they just wouldn't answer me they acted like I, they might have even lied to me. I don't know. The doctors had told them, right, um, you know, how to handle it. And one day I'm sitting there in my hospital bed and I hear on the TV and it's so strange, but I heard my name and the announcer said, the lady said, Jason Miller, if you're watching this, we're sorry to tell you that we just took Angel off life support. Then I started to panic, freak out, right? Everybody come running into the room. 
and I found out right that they were all killed. Um, Angel was the only one who survived. She was going to be a vegetable. They had the grandparents had decided, or the parents, or the yeah, the grandparents had decided that they were going to pull her off life support. And uh, I was angry, man. I was so angry that they didn't tell me. Um, it really spiraled me into a crazy space where you just don't know. You know, you blame yourself, even though it wasn't my fault. I, I, I think from that moment, I really began to, uh, the unforgiveness in my life from that moment was almost always turns towards me. Okay. Through my next season of life. But starting there, I think I could not forgive myself. And I struggle with this thing called survivor's guilt. Um, they were most of the family, I think, was killed instantly because as they got picked up, the house got picked up, the house got ripped apart. They probably went through the side walls of the house because they were all found within like 100 feet of the house. So if you imagine, you know, a house getting ripped apart and the things inside go flying through the sides, it's just an incredible miracle that I got picked up. I got pulled up through this funnel and held on the inside of this wall and then thrown out and survived and so 10 years later we're like i said this has been 10 years now and i'm just starting to see the clarity of this you know why this happened or uh kind of how god has used it in my life but it it, it sent me down a really dark road and uh i have a story in there one of the stories in there about the family is that i have a um the survivor's guilt I, I recognize really was a monster. Okay. And I struggled with that the first six months. So tremendously, I got out of the hospital and got put on all these meds. I was already half addicted. Right. And, uh, just really went into a bad space. A guy called me from Oklahoma while I was laying in the hospital. And he said, I know what you're going through and I know what you're going to go through. Cause I went through it. And he said, here's my number. Call me if you need something. And I, my mom wrote the number down and I remember saying, uh, I'm not going to need that. I am not going to let this do that to me. Like I said it in my heart. I grew up Amish. I was tough. I was not going to go into no PTSD. And I, I made up my, I mean, I, I remember like making a decision that's not going to happen to me, but uh, trauma literally shapes your brain, right? It, it, it physically changes your brain. And so it, I, you know, I, I couldn't stop it. Right. And so one of the things was this survivor's guilt thing. I had a moment at one point, just to, as an example, how real unforgiveness towards yourself and this thing called survivor's guilt can be. If you maybe survived a, a traumatic event or maybe your family member died of overdose and you think you should have, right. I know a lot of people like that. They think they should have been the one that that didn't make it and I always thought why didn't the family survive and I you know was the one that I would have wanted I didn't want to be alive at that point but anyway the survivor's guilt was so real one night I had a team praying for me and they were leading me through all these prayers and for trying to forgive myself and we're five hours into this like deliverance session and this man looks at me and he says you can't forgive yourself for being alive can you and, uh, you know, it really hit hit something in me. And it was it was true. I didn't want to be alive. And I think I 
you know, I wish I, I wish people would have understood that in my journey that I didn't want to be there. How do you support someone like that? That's it's difficult, but I didn't want to be there. But anyway, he prayed for me. We went through this whole thing and uh, forgave myself. And I remember the next morning I woke up on a bed of white sheets. And I remember looking at the sheets and the sheets were like pink. There was just like weird color on the sheets and something physically um, oozed out of my body. I, I could take a white sheet or a white towel and rub my skin for seven days. Something physically came out of me. Um, it was it was that much of a real, uh, you know, it was that real. So that really did shift. That that was a big moment for me to to forgive myself and move on. But then, so where my journey really turns bad is when my doctor took me off of my meds in about about eight months, probably something like that. Well, eight months into after the tornado, so March 2nd of 2012, we're in September, October now, and uh, I kind of get cut off of my meds, and this is where, you know, our medical system is so in need of, of, of repair, right, and I have a real heart for addicts and people who are on meds because it has a place and we need those meds, medicines to get people to these places. But I got dumped, you know, all my pain meds all of a sudden. And so I had experimented and with drugs and had used them recreationally uh, before, but now I needed them. I went through the worst detox of my life. The first one was the worst one. I'd never detoxed, tried to detox off all these drugs, cold turkey julie i'm talking cold turkey man from all the alcohol all the drugs i've been doing and then eight months of a massive amount of scripts um so probably by october of 2012 right this this is when you know i've before i turned to street drugs there was one experience there that i had and i have these god moments throughout my journey right where my god moments uh, three days in, I'm detoxing. Three days in, I haven't slept. I get these convulsions, right? My, my legs are just restless legs. I'm losing it, man. I mean, I was, I described it as my brain would melt. It was so difficult. And people didn't know how to help me. My, my, my family, they hadn't gone through anything like that, right? They didn't really know what, you know, what to do for me. They would heat towels and wrap them around my legs. And finally, they took me to my cousin's house and there was maybe six or eight people around me praying for me, and I'll never forget it. My cousin's husband, Paul, he he had a shofar, and he stood at the end of the room, and he blew the shofar, and I don't know if I'd even ever heard one. I'm not sure if I had, but when he blew the shofar, I felt it start in the soles of my feet, and something came up, the detox or the spirit or whatever it was. It came up from the soles of my feet, up through my legs, up through my chest. And I felt it literally get pulled out of the top of my head. The resonance, the tone, the, the uh, you know, there's something special on that sound, man. And I'm living proof. And it completely, the, it just sucked right out of my body. And I dropped down. I leaped up and I was shouting. And it was one of those amazing God moments where I knew I had been set free from that detox right there it was amazing uh and so i often go back to that right that was part of my journey god man that was a miracle undeniable 
those moments really did save my life in a lot of ways because I kept going back to that. But um, I couldn't sleep. The problem was is I, when I would detox, I couldn't sleep. And so that's what always drove me back to drugs. So I couldn't sleep for a couple of days and always got drove back to the drugs and uh, stayed sober for about two, maybe, I don't know, two weeks, something like that, and uh, went straight to street drugs. So that's kind of where, you know, my story, I got pulled off my meds. I had that experience. Um, it's like God gave me that gift to get me through. But uh, I went, you know, I did it of my own doings. I went straight into street drugs. So things got really dark after that. Yeah, I don't know how much you want to share about how bad the, the how bad drugs that you were doing there towards the end. But I know it got really dark. Yeah. So this is in March of 2012. Uh, the tornado happened by October of 2012. Um, I got pulled off the meds. I got on the street drugs. And so at this point, I am going from from uh, 2012, 13, 2014, 2015. There's about three years there that I could, I'm not sure how much I could remember, but I could probably write a book that would possibly be a number one seller. As a lot of addicts could, because I lost all reason. I had what I believe now was a, um, a demonic or um, an influence in my life. I had opened a door to the enemy, and in my dark moments, those voices would hammer me. I I was never fully suicidal after the tornado, even though I went through extreme PTSD. I got diagnosed with PTSD. I was extremely depressed, but the voices were there. See, I was never the type of person that could do it, but the voices were there. I wanted to do it. I wanted to end it. Um, I wanted to kill the pain, right? And and the emotional trauma it just build up. And then as you begin, as you go through addiction, what happens is you begin to disappoint your family. You know, mom would call me, and mom would cry, and you know, my friends would reach out to me, and the spiral like is just demonic it is it is really hard to put details to a lot of it because it's such a massive just tremendously dark blur i began to i got hooked onto heroin okay which i was i was on the pain medicine so i wasn't just another opiate i got on heroin i got on to speed i did every dry did crack cocaine i i dabbled in meth um, I never did a lot of meth. I always say that meth is the devil's drug. It It is a direct line to hell, to the pit of hell. I've done it. I've heard the demons. I've seen them. Um, some people will tell you it's hallucinations. I'm telling you, meth is a direct line to hell. It is a devil's drug, and it is the darkest thing. And a lot of the addiction that you see in the world right now, and a lot of these homeless people, they're doing meth, a lot of the crazy stuff. It robs you of your humanity. You are not even human. You are, I wouldn't, I'd never say you're not responsible for what you're doing, but that's how much it changes you. It, the, the, the high moral person that grew up in a good family. I mean, our family, we grew up you know, hard, but we still had a good family. We were, we were loved and, uh, you know, in, in, in mom and dad's own way, I became a complete animal. And, you know, it just, just went downhill. I lost, I'd get pulled over and then I'd get my license suspended. I'd lose my vehicle. Um, 
I do, I'd rob somebody. I, I got, you know, Walmart, you know, whatever. I get caught doing this, just the whole thing. And in 2015, you're talking three years of this, just on and on. I, I'd, I'd work, I'd lose a job. I'd get sober for a week. I'd lose it back and forth. I knew that I needed God to pull me out, that I needed to give my heart to you know, because I couldn't do it my own strength, but I was stubborn and I was trying to do it. I didn't, so I'd never been taught how to rely on the Holy Spirit. I was never taught that. If I could go back to my younger self and give him a gift, it would be the, the ability or the knowledge or the revelation, I think, that I have now on me and the Holy Spirit and what we can accomplish together. You know, God does not carry it all he wants you to to carry he will you you have to give it to him and then he'll carry it with you um i didn't have a good revelation of how to get out of it other than in my own strength and uh, religion teaches you that religion teaches you you do better and then god will come through for you and i just i really could never hold it together for more than maybe two weeks, something like that. So I, it ended up my lowest point. I, I went through some detoxes. I would go to a detox. I would come out. Um, I would go to church, right? Uh, I would grasp onto something. Maybe God would give me a, um, a, a just enough that I would encounter God at the altar. I just I have this one moment, you know, these moments where I can look back and God was just pulling me through this thing. One moment I went to church and I was so, so, such a dark, awful, like, oh my gosh, there's just the darkness, man. It was just enveloped you. And my pastor saw what I was going through and he said, Jason, go sit up um, in front of the band. And he went and asked one of the guys from the band to play a solo over me. And this guy played a guitar solo over me. That was one, it was a, it was like a prophetic act. And I would go back to that, right? God, what he did for me, right? And and I had this, I had this God encounter. And uh, so it was enough, right? It was enough to keep me on the trail. And I ended up in 2015, I had burned every bridge. I had stole from every person. I had the cops after me. I had no truck. My truck had gotten towed. I had no driver's license. I had my final time that I got in trouble. I had the possibility of like 50 felonies hanging over my head. And I was done. My family was done with me. They, there was just, there was just no way out of this thing without divine intervention or, you know, the system kind of closing down on me. So a friend of mine from church who has actually really stood with me throughout the years. And he's Conrad. He's like a man God put in my life, but that's the man that drove me to the homeless shelter. Okay. That man drove me to the homeless shelter. He dropped me off and he said, Jason, I think this is where you need to be. And I said, this is not where I need to be. I was so terrified, Julie. I will never forget that moment sitting in the homeless shelter, sitting there, knowing that there was no options, right? There was nothing. I was that low. If I could have, if I could have ended it, you know, that's the moment I would have done it. I just... God had gave me enough hope and enough spark, and I had enough to not. But considering where I grew up and what I'd been through, 
living in a homeless shelter, showering with 20 other men, right? If anyone knows how those places are, you go into a mass open shower, 20, 30 men at a time are showering. You're sleeping in the same room. You're all eating in the same room. If you don't make it back to the place, if you're five minutes late, you're sleeping outside under the bridge, under a piece of cardboard. And, uh, and I've done it. And that's, that's where I had gotten to. And so at that point, I made a commitment to my family. I talked to my mom on the phone. I said, whatever it takes. And the point here is that until you get to that place, when it's dark, until you get to that place, whatever it takes, you are going to find it. It's I call it plan B, right? We always have a plan B, okay? I had to get plan B and plan C. I had to take them out of my vocabulary. And that's a, in a lot of ways, I live my life like that, right? We, we, uh, we, we can prepare for the, you know, we can prepare for the worst, but we expect the best. But I don't like a plan A or a plan or a plan B or C. I have a plan and I go and I had to get to that place. So we, I, that, that was my low point right there. That was my low moment, 2015. Uh, but it still didn't happen right away. It still didn't happen right away. My buddy uh, picked me up. Uh, actually, my dad picked me up, took me to a rehab. I got thrown out of that rehab within a couple of weeks. Um, just something stupid, right? Um, the enemy, man. I'm telling you, some of these things was a devil, man. He was not going to let me get sober. And, you know, I can kind of see why now in some ways, but went to another rehab. Was there 21, 24 days. Got thrown out of that rehab. That was it right there. My buddy Conrad came, picked me up and uh, drove me across. He brought me onto his property line and he had told me, he said, the Lord told me to pray over my property before I bring you back onto this property. And he said he had set uh, he had set angels around the property, and he said there's no demonic entity that's going to be allowed to enter this. Okay, and he was he has a spiritual warfare mindset, right? He thinks yeah. like that. He was always talking to me about spiritual warfare. Didn't really make sense to me uh, in the darkness, right? I couldn't really see it, but looking back, that's what it was. That was the moment right there. I drove onto the property. I remember like flying back into the van seat. Something hit me right here. And I could feel something hit me. And from that moment, I believe that that was a deliverance moment for me, even though I barely knew it. Wow. I, bar I barely knew it. Well, what happened? Because I was in a dark, dark place. Um, but that, so that's where everything kind of turned for me. I, I, there was a, a rehab that we found called New Beginnings. It's kind of prophetic, right? That it's called New mm -hmm. Beginnings. Um, it was in Southern Ohio and they had an opening for me, literally in this exact time. Like, I mean, I had like a 12 hour window, man. I was going to jail. I was going to be sleeping on the street, going back to the homeless shelter, or they were going to put me in this rehab. And it was the one thing I fought the most was long-term rehab. And I'm telling you, it was because the devil knew if I ever got long-term rehab, he could never stop me because the amount of time that I had spent, you know, just ruining myself, right? The amount of time that I had, that, that I had been uh, out there living it up, you're not going to fix that in 30 days, okay? And I wanted a quick fix, right? And it wasn't going to happen. So when I got to the bottom of the barrel, that's what happened. I, I found this place, New Beginnings, but I had to commit to seven months. 
And then this is where the story kind of changes and gets good, right? Because, man, man, I haven't told that story in detail like that in a while. That was that was really, really, really dark times, man. And I can just see how God gave me enough through those times to 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 not end it and to not, you know, curse God and die as Job did, you know, as Job's friends told him to do, but but to hang on to some semblance of hope. And through all of this, my mom was praying for me, okay? And there is something to a praying mom that is that I have a real revelation on. And my mom does too because she's, she's experienced it. And she, I truly believe that God showed me laying in the hospital bed after the tornado that I was alive because my mom prayed for me. And I truly believe today that I didn't overdose and die and go to prison because my mom was praying for me because I did nothing. I should have. I did nothing. I was a I was a nobody. I was the worst. I was the weakest. I had nothing. And for me to make it through and to get to this point with this opportunity that I had at that moment was a praying mom and God had lit enough fires in my heart that I had just. And so I went to the rehab and I made it, man. And uh, new beginnings, man. My story really, uh, that was the last run, man. That was the last run. I, it was one of the hardest things I had to do, though. I had to commit to this thing, man. How are you going to commit to seven months stepping out of your life? You know you're going to go through hell. You've tried it. And it's never worked. So I had no hope that it could work. Um, I was terrified of the detox. I didn't have uh, I didn't have much to hang on to there those first couple of weeks, but I build on it. You know, when you run out of options, you get to rock bottom. I had hit rock bottom, and then I and then I hit the homeless shelter, and then I and then I had the fifty felonies on top of me, and then. At one point, I get robbed. I'm homeless, living on the streets with like $30 to my name. I get robbed. Um, I I ended up in the most insane situation you would not believe. But I had enough to know that if I didn't do this this time, that was it. I wanted to leave that place. But I had been through those places, and I had seen it. And I was like, no way. There's nowhere to go. There is nowhere else to go. I really drove myself to the rock bottom and then to the basement of rock bottom. So for me, my journey in rehab and how I got sober, how I stayed sober and what happened, just kind of to share a little bit of that story. We, we had a very organized, scheduled uh, rehab. When you, when you go through addiction and you learn all these bad habits, there are so many bad habits you pick up man, you need some good habits. You really need to get some good habits. And I built those good habits. I began to fix my bed, right? So if you if you think you don't like somebody telling you that when you're in that dark space, that's the time to build it. I look back, that was it. That was it, man. I built those habits right there. Within uh, the first 10 or 11 days, I didn't sleep. I had, I had, I went through absolutely awful things. A lot of people leave during that time, but what was I going to go back to, right? There's one point I just remember sitting on the porch crying and this lady walks up to me and she's like, can I pray for you, Jason? And I said, God doesn't care about my detox. Like it had, I had already, um, I was in this mindset, right? That I was going through it no matter what. I didn't need the miracle. I knew I was going through it. I made up my mind and, uh, 
you know, I said that in a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, hadn't slept in seven days, but I got through it. Okay. Started sleeping, got into the gym, started getting healthy. And then I started journaling. I started writing my feelings down and I had never done that. And uh, today, you know, I, I've got, I've got so many journals. I just got this stacks. Look, I'm going to show you guys this here real quick. I had this out. I was going through this the other day. Oh, it's all journals. Wow. And, uh, when you're in a, in a dark place and if you can write your feelings down and go back through it and, and see the progress, that's what did it for me. Right. I started to see the progress that was, I was making. And, and, you know, I had, I had amazing moments in that rehab seven months. I committed myself to that place. Um, I told God, nothing is going to get me to leave this place. It wasn't fun. No, but I had, you know, what, what was I going to do? Where was I going to go? I decided I wasn't going to leave till I had my driver's license. I wasn't going to leave until I had a, enough money saved up for my own place, till I knew I could get back into a job, till I had earned the respect of my family, till I had gotten my court things in order, till I had made things right with every person I could, till I had a car and a license, all those things. I was not leaving, and I, and I set that in my heart, and I believe God honored that. Mm -hmm. God saw that I was serious. And, and I would walk around that property and pray, right? And I would I pray out loud. And I said, this is, I would tell God how I felt. And when I was frustrated, I would tell him too. But I would tell him, this is what I'm doing. And he really honored that. A um, couple months in, I went in for my hearing for, for my, uh, all the charges, robbery, all kinds of drugs. I mean, it was just driving without a license, all these things. They put them all together. The... I had a prayer team pray for me the night before I went to court. And the one man, he said, he said, I believe God's going to do a miracle for you, Jason. He said, you've been faithful in here. God's going to come through for you. I cried like a baby. I was like, oh, dear Lord, please just come through for me. You know, I could have gone to jail and I had been three months in rehab. And, and I was like, whatever. I just said, Lord, whatever. I'm doing it. I'll never forget. I walked into that room with my uh, public defender and he looked at me across the table. And he said, uh, and I hadn't said a word. And he said, Jason, how would you feel if we took these charges and he read them off and we dropped them down to an attempt to commit an offense, which is just a misdemeanor. And I looked at him and I said, don't, don't, don't joke with me. Okay. That's not funny. And he said, no, I'm being serious. I just talked to the judge. And I just, Oh my gosh, I saw the God's hand was right there on that judge, on that man. They they looked at my situation. I don't know who they talked to, hope probably God because they would have never let this boy off like that. But uh, they said if you finish your rehab, we're going to drop it to an attempt to commit an offense. So there's that, pretty much gone, right? I was going to finish that rehab. Um I got a job, they allowed me to work on the side and I got my driver's license back. I started to save up money. Uh, a man from church gave me a, he said, Jason, once you get your license back and you get to this space, I'll give you this minivan. He's going to give me this van, right? I was so pumped, man. I hadn't had a vehicle at that point, like two year and a half or something, right? And I felt like I was getting it back together. I began to have a little bit of hope, right? And I was writing all this stuff down. And, and uh, this is when, this is when I, I begin to have real Holy Spirit encounters, right? I... I had encounters at, 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 during worship at church. Um, 
I would have encounters walking the trails, walking behind the rehab or praying, or some boy would come in in full-blown detox and I would pray over him and he would either his deep his he would feel something right or uh or he would encounter God or he would people would come back to me and they'd be like, man, like I felt the Holy Spirit when you prayed for me, right? And those things were massive. Okay, this is where my commitment to be sold out no matter what. Nothing else matters. All these other things don't matter. Not, it, this doesn't matter, okay? You can, you can achieve anything in life that you want, but if you don't do it with the calling that God's placed on your heart, and if you're not walking the path where God wants you to go, it doesn't matter, man. It, there's no, there's no uh, fulfillment in it. There's no drive in it. It's it's empty. Money to me right now, money is like that big. Okay, it means that much to me. Yeah, sure, I want to be successful, but money is just a means to achieve something that brings real lasting purpose and and real uh, uh, fulfillment in your life. That's where real joy comes from, man. Is fulfillment. But I had a lot of those moments. You know, I could share maybe a few of those stories real quick if we have time. Yeah, I love the one where you talked to the man in the suit and you we weren't far out of your rehab, I think. That was really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the crazy story. Okay, I'll share that story. We uh I was in rehab actually, but I was going to another church. So we went to Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, Wednesday night church. The owner of the rehab. Um, had a church that the husband had a church and the wife had a rehab okay so mm -hmm. it was the same family and so we had took the bus to church but anyway there was another church that I could go to Thursday night church if I wanted to they allowed me to go to Thursday night church very few people did but I did and I uh, went to these weird little house church there's two women that were pastors two women that had been through a lot amazing women oh my goodness these people changed my life He'd walk in there and the Holy Spirit was in those rooms. One night we were sitting there, Thursday night church. Um, and I was sitting on an aisle seat on a chair in this house church and two men that I had never seen before. I might get emotional telling this story because this was crazy. Like I couldn't make this up, right? I couldn't make this up. Yeah. I was sitting... On the aisle seat, these two men walked in and they were wearing suits, both of them. And the one on the left side st stood out to me. And in this, and as he walked by, I immediately sensed something. And I don't know how it happened. I just know, I won't say not in the physical, but in my spirit, I saw two angels walking on each side of this man. And these were big angels. They were walking right on each side of him. They had weapons. And I knew this man was uh, being protected from something. But obviously, in my mind, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I don't know, five, six months sober. I'm in a rehab. Who am I? What do I know? This guy looks like he's a multimillionaire. He looked like very classy. He looked very confident. And I would, you know, but during the service, the Lord began to put it on my heart that I needed to tell him what I saw. At the end of the service, he immediately got up and went out. And I immediately got up. And, you know, when God puts something on your heart, it don't mean it's going to be easy. I was shaking, man. I was shaking. I knew I had to tell this man. I didn't know if he was going to think I was crazy or what. But I ran outside, and he's already, like, walking out behind the house. 
And I yelled at him. And I said, hey. He turned around, just kind of looked at me kind of strange. And I told him what I saw. I said, hey, I just, when you walked in, I saw a big angel on either side of you. And uh, I don't know what that means to, you know, right. But, you know, obviously God's looking out for you or something. He just looked at me real funny and kind of taken back by it. Didn't say a word, did not say a word, turned and walked away. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, man, I said, Lord, I did it. You know, I I was in, in, in tuning up with the spirits and now I wasn't totally crazy, but I didn't know what actually had happened. So probably about four weeks later, three or four weeks later, I'm at that church again and I go by. I was going pretty much every Thursday night. Um, and, and this man is standing in there. He sees me. He's standing up front talking to one of the ladies and he sees me and he comes running up to me he grabs me he gives me this big hug and he's like hollering and he's like bro you'll never believe this story he's just like totally jacked out of up you know and i'm like freaked out really a little bit freaked out by this guy um because this was a man who looked like he had his stuff together okay he did not look like he was in trouble he didn't feel like he was in trouble and if I wouldn't have been in this, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have been speaking to me, I'd have never saw this. But anyway, so he said what happened is he was a business owner. He was a millionaire. He owned a big business. He had found out that week that his wife was cheating on him with his best friend. And she was going to divorce him and take the business. So he said he was going to lose the business. He was going to have to sell the business to make the divorce. And his best friend was sleeping with his wife. And he had grew up in the church, but he had not encountered God. He had almost no God encounters for a long time. And he had told God, his friend had told him, he said, we're going to go to church. And he didn't want to go. And he fought. And then he finally said, I, I made a deal with God. He said, I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to go one last time. And if you don't show me, show up or show me, I'm going to kill myself. And his plan, he said, when he left that church, he was going to go out behind the barn. He was going to decide how he was going to do it. He said, I was going to decide how I was going to kill, end it. And when you came up and said, to, said that to me, he said, I knew that was my moment. That was God telling me that he was watching over me, that he had angels around me, that he was not going to let anything. He had my back, right? And <laughs> it was a wild moment, man. This man you know, this kid in a rehab that was the most unlikely person to speak something this simple over him to save his life. But man, can God, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, man. Corinthians says that he, he, God is like chuckles when he says, you boys, you got it. You got this and these pastures and you got all this, you, you know, these things, but I'm going to use the, 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 the worst among you to do the greatest. Love how, you know, you're having these Holy Spirit encounters and your faith is growing and you're healing and, and blessings are flowing. I know there's, there's so much more to your story, giftings and things that were happening as you're having all this healing and uh, just the heart that you have for people that are struggling. And I love your humility and, and being so honest to share how many times and being homeless and, and, you know, that you, you had to get to that place where you were like, this is it. There's nothing that's going to stop me. You had to reach that point. But one thing I want you to do is imagine when you were in that place where you felt there was no hope at all, 
you know, there's so many people struggling, whether it's PTSD or addiction right now that are trying to overcome this. And they, they may be on their seventh time or whatever time that was that you finally overcame, but what can you say to them? Man, first of all, I know what it's like, man. I know what it's like. It's dark, but there is never, it is never hopeless. Okay. You might feel hopeless, but it's never hopeless because when God created us, he knew the beginning from the end. He knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb and he knows our end. So he did not leave you without a way. I don't care if you don't have the family that I did. He did not leave you without a way. And that way may not look like my way. Promise you there's something within you, something you went through when you were a kid, something you went through during your first stages has built something in you. You have what it takes. That's what I would tell people. You really, it's in there. We don't have to look outside. We, we all need help, right? And counseling is great and <clears throat> all the external things. But within each one of us, I fully believe God has placed enough within us to take us where he's called us and to pull us out. And so if you want to get out of those dark spaces, and if you are addicted, um, you have what it takes and begin to, I don't know what I did is I began to write down my hopelessness. I mean, I, some of my journals, they're pretty awful. Okay. <laughs> Harsh. Like I was not nice. I didn't write nice things about God or about how I felt or, um, I just wrote down awful things and cried doing it. And because why? Because I had no option. I was, I, there was nothing else for me to do. <clears throat> and I am, you know, I don't, everybody has their own journey about taking meds and, and you need something for addiction or, or for depression or for insomnia and all of those. But I'm telling you, when I decided to get off my meds, God made a way. He gave me the grace. I was as addicted as anyone. I had been on them for years. I depended on them like my life depended on them. And when I heard in my heart to quit, I quit. I was in rehab. Yes, I was in a safe space. I quit my meds. And I'm telling you, there is a better way, okay? There is a better way. God has made a way, and he has gave us the Holy Spirit, and he will place people around you. He has placed something within you. There is a way. And uh, whether it's journaling, you, you know, obviously the best thing you could do is, is pray and connect to the Holy Spirit. But if you're in a dark place, that's really hard to do. But find someone else that can believe for you and stand with you. Uh, that was a big part of my journey as well. I did have men that stood with me, so. Yeah, and I think that's beautiful. And you are getting involved with your community. You found purpose and you just shared your testimony. You blessed so many people and I can't wait to see what's next for you. So I'm very excited. So thank you so much for sharing this with me today. And you made me cry when you talked about a praying mom, because I am praying lots of prayers over my babies and I know God hears every single one. So that, that really touched me. So thank you for that. Would you mind praying over our listeners on the way out? Absolutely. I would love to. Okay. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the power of a testimony and what you've done in my life. Thank you for Julie's obedience, for doing this podcast, bringing all these amazing stories together for people, being such an encouragement to those who are struggling. So, Lord, I just pray for every person that's in a dark place right now who are struggling and fighting their demons, who feel hopeless, for every person that's depressed right now. 
We speak hope over them. I declare they're going to find their purpose. They're going to find someone to stand with them. Lord, give them courage and grace to get through these times. You will never call us to something that you have not already made a way or the provision is not there. I believe that and I speak that out over every person that is watching this. Lord, may they find peace and maybe they find their purpose in life because you have called each one of us to amazing things. The purpose for each one of us, there is, it has been created from the beginning of time and you have that purpose. And so I pray that these people would all find their purpose and that would pull them closer to you and, and cause them to, to seek after you to find that fulfillment in life that can only come from knowing you and finding our purpose in life. And so I thank you again for everything that you've done in my life and for what you're doing in Julie's and every person that's watching this. Would they be blessed in Jesus' name? Amen. 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 Oh, and one more thing. Jason, you have a YouTube channel. Would you like to share your YouTube channel? I do. I do have a YouTube channel that has a little info on it. Some of my other videos It's just Jason D. Miller. So if you search Jason D. Miller, you'll find my YouTube channel. It has a shortened version of my story on there. I also, I'm on Instagram a lot. I'm on, there's Twisted Miller. So that's the main, that's the main social media that I do. So contact me there. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any, anything I can do to help, man. My heart really is for people that are going through addiction or struggling through the things that I went through because we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So <clears throat> Yes. Thank you for that. And I will list those links for you below. And there's tons of news stories on what happened with Jason. I'll link those too. Thank you so much. And thanks for being patient. You guys, I'm getting flooded with all these great testimonies. So just hang in there. If you haven't heard back from me yet, uh, God is on the move. He is very active. So God bless you. Thank you for listening. Just want to take a moment and let you know that my brand new book, Picture Perfect, One Mom's Journey from Striving to finding her identity in Christ is now available online at amazon.com and Barnes and Noble. Are you ready for your breakthrough? Are you ready to fully embrace who you are in Christ? Check it out. God bless.